Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On the 8th of May, 1973, one day after taking command as president of the New South Wales Rugby League, Kevin Humphreys was interviewed by the Sydney Morning Herald. In a bold opening salve, Humphreys outlined his vision for the future, one involving the reduction in Sydney clubs from 12 to 6 through amalgamations. As a signal of intent, it was brazen, radical and bound to signal alarm among Sydney league hierarchy. But Humphreys wasn't done there. In what is possibly the first printed reference to the concept that would drop on rugby league across the world like a bomb two decades later, the Sydney Morning Herald wrote, Turning, the, turning to the possibility of a wider Super League competition, Humphreys said, we could incorporate strong country areas like Wollongong, Newcastle, Canberra and Wagga into a larger competition. And we're getting to the stage with air travel where it's feasible to send teams to Brisbane for competition and show it on direct television to Sydney. This is part one of Making the Big Game Bigger, the second chapter of the Rugby League's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? I'm very well, thank you, mate. Very exciting, this episode. So I wanted to start with that Humphreys quote, not just because of the foreshadowing it provides, but also because of its relevance to a theme that we'll be dealing with over and over again over the course of this series, and that's the writing on the wall. Time and time again in the 22 years between Humphreys taking over and April Fool's Day 1995, Australian Rugby League has found itself looking at the writing on the wall, talking about the writing on the wall, forming committees and <laughs> subcommittees about the writing on the wall, and ultimately choosing to ignore the writing on the wall. I don't know whether our administrators are illiterate, but they never, ever read the writing on the wall, <laughs> ever. And when I, when I saw this, this Humphreys quote and this idea that in the 70s people already knew that something had to change about Rugby League... I was I was trying to think about it in terms of what it meant about rugby league administration. And it's not a case of not seeing the forest for the trees. If anything, it's kind of far-sighted. They kind of had this vision of the future and knew what needed to be done or knew an ideal state, but lacked the lacked the infrastructure or the administrative ability to actually put in the steps that would lead them there. I actually think rugby league strength, which is toughness and resourcefulness and and heart hurts rugby league in that every time a club's about to go they find a way to survive at the 11th hour running on the smell of an oily rag that type of thing so every time they try and cut clubs they somehow survive like just due to their heart and and that's something we're going to look at in depth in next week's episode and with that i should set up that uh, at the end of our last episode, we mentioned that this episode would be looking at the decade of the 1980s and, and, and all the changes to the game in that decade that led to the rise of Super League. I, I was planning to just touch on the 1970s, the, the Humphreys era, but the more I looked at it, the more I realized that this was all a continuum and you can't talk about 
Ken Arthurson and John Quayle taking over in 1983 without looking at the 10 years before that? Well, let me just say as an opening thought, I can't believe how how far-sighted Kevin Humphreys was. I mean, it's well documented on this podcast that there's only three stories in rugby league, Sattler's Jaw, etc. Uh, and with Kevin Humphreys, you only get one story at the end. You, mm. don't, you don't get to start. And yeah, it's quite incredible. And he wasn't done there. Like the day after that original Herald article, it, it was met with the blowback that you'd expect from, you know, as you'd say, the Brill Creams club officials. So faced with the chance to kind of, you know, back down or offer a, uh, you know, soften the blow somehow, he actually doubled down and said he thought that this could be achieved within the next two to three years. I mean, that's what a statement of intent. And then these are guys that are well-versed in um, in warring and, um, and politics in administration. So straight away, the knives are out at his back. <laughs> yeah. And it's a statement of intent, but again, it's something that wasn't actioned upon. So his his main argument for making that change in the 70s was he didn't think there were enough players to fill 12 teams, yet it was under Humphreys that the league went to 14 teams and then, you know, beyond his reign to 16 and then 20. Rugby League's always been good at expansion and not at contraction. So Newtown fell by the wayside, um, which was uh, absolutely necessary. And it was absolutely necessary to bring in Illawarra and Canberra. Mm. And Newcastle and Brisbane. So. Yeah. But interestingly enough, in Ken Arthurson's book, Arco My Game, which you can go back to the first episode of this series to, to hear our re- expanded review of that book, Ken Arthurson had this quote, An alternative proposal designed to spark debate made interesting reading in July 1986. The Daily Telegraph reported, Australian Rugby League Supremo Ken Arthurson has proposed a Super League to replace the present midweek cup competition. Arthurson has suggested a Super League comprising of four or five combined teams from Sydney, two from Brisbane, three New South Wales country teams, Queensland country and Auckland. And Arson presents that in, in his book as if it's this kind of, he deserves some kudos for like, <laughs> you know, thinking that a Super League proposal had, had merit. But here we go. We've got um, Humphrey saying Super League, Arthurson saying Super League. Like it was a great name. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the other funny thing. It was always Super League. <laughs> like, why did it have to be Super League? I mean, they just took it from Super Bowl. Yeah. And again, you're seeing, you're seeing it in that quote. It's a half measure the way Arthurson was proposing it. Amalgamating teams for a midweek cup, which would that have ever got beyond the stage of Mickey Mouse? Never. <laughs> but it, it, uh, it's easy to sit back and judge with hindsight. But can you imagine dealing with these clubs and the backlash? Like to try and rationalize these clubs is yeah. the most difficult thing in the world. It's been proven for decades. And, and this is where Humphreys and to a lesser extent Arthurson were both hamstrung especially before the incorporation of the league in 1983, the league's controlling body was a 48-man committee. <laughs> you know, representatives from every club. and Can you imagine? Yeah, like the amount of self-interest in that room on a, <laughs> at Phillips Street on a Monday night. But so when Humphreys did take command in 1973, you saw in that quote the idea of a new era, and that was true in the way Humphreys was talked about, along with... Uh, the Young Turks alongside him, Ken Arthurson, Peter Moore, Charlie Gibson from Souths. There was a real feel that this young brigade was sweeping in. When I say young, they were all in their early 40s, you know. But Bill Buckley had been, you know, an understudy to Jersey Flag and had been, you know, active in the league for, for decades. Amazing. This is a sign of the times in itself. When Kevin Humphreys was ultimately ousted in 1983... He became the first league boss in over 50 years to not die in office. 
I mean, to be fair, like there were, it was only Bill Buckley and Jersey Flag in that fifty years, but <laughs> dying in offers. <laughs> and and for quite a few years before he took over, it was considered a fait accompli that Humphreys would be the next boss of the the rugby league. He was known as the boy orator for his you know sparkling speeches. <laughs> and uh, in in nineteen seventy, Jeff Prenter in the Rugby League Week wrote. One day, Kevin Humphreys will be the president of the New South Wales Rugby League, whether he likes it or not. Is this shades of Todd Greenberg? Like, um, he, um, Todd Greenberg spoke reasonably well in a couple of press conferences and now he's the boss of the league. Yeah, yeah. And, and you do see that a lot in the Humphreys era, which we're going to spend some time interrogating to, you know, see how much of it was his failings and how much was forces beyond his control. But you do get a sense of this style over substance with the way his speeches were talking about. And the, I didn't see this quote mentioned, but anytime I see the phrase smooth operator in rugby league terms, <laughs> I'm very suspicious. Smooth operator is very close to empty suit. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. And so when Humphreys did come into, into power, and we mentioned statement of intent, another statement of intent was to immediately install his friends on the committee to key posts in the league. So Charlie Gibson was made manager of the 1973 Kangaroos, which in that time, when you were team manager, it meant a free trip to England. And and Peter Moore was made the manager of a New South Wales trip to Queensland. So just those immediate moves signal to everyone in the game that the new brigade was coming into force. And funnily enough, Rugby League Week, in their headline to announce Humphreys taking over, the headline was, Youth revolution, the streamliners move in. Wow. They didn't really go into depth in, in terms of that idea of streamlining, but it's something that it's it's very, very interesting to look at that the use of that word in the context of everything that happened. It's one of those things where everyone knows like it's bloated. And uh but streamlining the rugby league can also mean watering down the source yeah. for the pies. Like <laughs> uh, so we we looked at Arthurson in the in his tenure as boss of the New South Wales and touched a bit on his rise as manly boss before that. But prior to Humphreys taking over, he had a very combative relationship with the New South Wales Rugby League. Statements like this from 1971. Top officials of the New South Wales Rugby League are staging a hate campaign against my club. The Rugby League couldn't give a damn about Manly. There's genuine delight when Manly are beaten. <laughs> Like so, statements like that were like his regular mo, and and it's kind of like the the tables turned turned quite quickly once Humphreys did get into control, and the the cries of favoritism, particularly favoritism involving Manly, started to come thick and fast as the seventies came on, and they stayed for decades. So it wasn't too long after Humphreys was installed that you started hearing talk of the cartel, as they became known which included the aforementioned uh, Arthurson Moore, Charlie Gibson. And it, it's funny, like, looking at this era and comparing it with earlier eras, there's there's always, same as in, in rugby league, there's always, like, this power block that you're either in or out. I know, always. And, and it's funny how much of it, and, and this goes beyond rugby league, this, this was very true of Australian sport uh, across the board at the time, but the, the, the whole Masons thing... That, that was, you know, a big thing in the 40s and 50s. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, in, in my hometown of Toronto, they had, they had the Masonic Hall. 
And I used to say to mum when I was a little kid, like, what, what does that mean? She'd say, oh, it's this group of people, blah, blah, blah. I, I didn't really get it. And then, you know, now I'm an adult, I understand. That, that was huge. Mm. It, it, was, it was literally an in-group for society. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we've heard talk of the, you know, 48 kangaroo tour. Like Len Smith left out because he wasn't amazing. <laughs> I mean, think about that. When, when Ken Arthurson, like, actually started his career in administration they said oh join the masons because you'll you know you'll get a a lift if you do that and he he actually joined and attended one meeting but gave it up but once humphreys and moore came in you're seeing this this catholic influence where humphreys and moore they actually both went to to my catholic high school christian brothers lewisham right so there seems to be always this old boys kind of connection well i think especially in the olden times of rugby league i think the conservative bent of these organizations really suited rugby league mm. like you know back when men were men so to speak with the brill cream and etc and uh i think i think masons and and, and, uh, and the catholics went hand in hand with rugby league at that time yeah. but i think i think the links between catholicism and rugby league in australia is it really deserves some like academic interrogation so like from the start like they've been like intrinsically linked for decades catholic schools were the only places where you could play in rugby league competitions within you know the new south wales school system well where would we be without patrician brothers fairfield yeah <laughs> seriously yeah st greg's <laughs> the uh these days it's all Kebra park <laughs> and i, I think the, the clearest example of the influence of the cartel is in the Greg Hartley affair of 1978. There's a lot of uh, innuendo and rumours about what went on. Everything that happened in the 1978 semifinals involving Hartley's uh, perceived favouritism of Manly over Parramatta and Cronulla, you hear everything from it was all above board, it was just you know a couple of mistakes made to an actual criminal conspiracy. <laughs> now, was he Hollywood at that stage? I think this... I. I don't know, but I, I, he definitely had the reputation of a mug lair by that point. So <laughs> I, I dare say the phrase Hollywood Hartley had been used by 1978. <laughs> but so, so much of the murkiness comes from the fact that... So much of the murkiness comes from the fact that Greg Hartley in July wasn't even a first-grade referee. He'd been dropped because of some poor performances. In August, Jeff Brenner in the Rugby League Week wrote... Greg Hartley dumped on the refereeing scrap heap two months ago will control the first grade Sydney grand final. And that's what subsequently happened. Over the course of that semi-final series, you had tries being given on the seven tackles. And I think there was something like five examples of Manly being given seven tackles in a set. It's insane. Um, you had Ray Price sent off uh, in controver controversial circumstances. All due respect to Hartley, I think that could happen to anybody, Ray Price being sent off. Yeah. But on the other side of the ball, no equivalent action against rough play by Manly players. So all these little moments throughout the course of the semifinals, and then there was the topper of Hartley being sent away on the, the coin of the rugby league for the, the, for the kangaroo tour of that year, which was viewed as some kind of payment. <laughs> No more fuel to the fire. You had uh, Jack Gibson, Roy Masters and Terry Fernley all coming out and saying they wouldn't have their teams play under Hartley in 1979. <laughs> Even Norm Proven, you know, the, the, you know. The gent's gent. The, the gent's gent, you know, he said, well, this is his way of, of saying what he wanted to say. He said, I, I can't repeat the words I, I would say about his performance because he was coaching Cronulla in the grand final <laughs> that year. 
So he, he wouldn't go on record with it, but he was clearly not happy about it. He was probably calling him a silly duffer or something. <laughs> a so-and-so. So as I said, I, I think the truth's probably somewhere in the middle. And there was definitely bad decisions made by Hartley that went the other way. You know, in the grand final, uh, Manly against Cronulla, he gave a late penalty to the Sharks, which allowed them to equalize and draw the game and force the replay following Tuesday. So there's definitely... There's definitely arguments against anything nefarious going on. It may just be incompetence. Yeah, it, it definitely could be. And, you know, that that's what Arthur, well, Arthurson said Hartley was a very good referee that made a few mistakes. He said that people didn't like him because he was a muggler. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the point, and I, I, don't, I don't know, I don't know the inside story, so I don't want to speculate on what did happen. But for me, like, it doesn't really matter what actually happened because... It's the, the perception of influence, of favoritism that matters like just as much as the reality of it. I think the same thing about Arthurson and Manly. I mean, if it was like a tie, he'd give Manly the, the benefit or something like that. Mm. Or maybe a little bit in Manly's favor, but it was perceived as like they're fixing the comp. Yep. It's like conspiracy straight away. Mm. So in rugby league, you've got to be 100% transparent down the middle so everybody can see and there's no argument. Otherwise, it snowballs out of control. Yeah, for sure. So, And this was something that would plague Arthurson all the way through Humphrey's reign and then exponentially more once he took control. And when you think about 1995, how toxic everything was, it didn't help when you had these players, these teams, these coaches, you know, getting thrown thousands and thousands of dollars at them while others like kind of got ignored. Yeah, absolutely. And it's part of his legacy. Yeah. It's inseparable. It's inseparable from Arthurson's legacy as Humphrey's downfall and the reasons for it were to his. Yeah. Like you, you can't speak about Ken Arthurson without touching on that aspect of, of his, you know, his rule. Mm. I, I do think it's overstated. Yeah. Uh, yeah but again, I, I think it probably is too, but it, it's just that. It doesn't public matter. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't matter the reality. Once the public gets that idea, once the other players and coaches get that idea, it might as well be true. Yeah. So let's let's turn to the actual football in the 70s and try to get a sense of the game and, and some of the, the issues and achievements made in that decade. Now, this is going to be very much a surface-level exploration of rugby league in the 70s. We're not going to go in-depth into everything that happened. For example, Andrew, were you aware that in 1975 in the grand final... Uh, Graham Langlands actually wore a pair of white boots. <laughs> Haven't heard anything about that. Well, you know, we'll, we'll save that for another show because we're not going to talk about it. Um, I'm surprised there was any football played in the 70s. I thought it was just violence. Yeah. So when Humphreys took over, it was in the midst of a real fluctuation in terms of crowds. So the game achieved its absolute high peak in 1968 after, a, you know, close to a decade of, of building. And then they've been steadily decreasing again once he took control. One thing on that. Uh, isn't it incredible that, that that's after the St. George run? Like, uh, and you would think that would lo- make people lose interest in rugby league. Yeah. So, similar to the uh, Queensland origin run, interest was at an all-time peak then as well. And, and I think you can see that in the 65 grand final, which did you know people were sitting on the roof <laughs> of the SCG? Um, I, I think you can definitely, it, it's a, you know obvious thing to say, but you can definitely see a public that was ready for a different team to be winning. And yeah, but I, I mean, logic would suggest that one team dominating would lead to, would lead to less interest, but it mm-hmm. hasn't been the case throughout, yeah. throughout rugby yeah, league yeah, history. Yeah, it's funny. It is. So Humphreys 
did take steps to address the crowd issues and he had some some very good success like by 1976 crowds were very much on the up again but it was based on kind of unsustainable grounds like involving like reducing tv coverage having like you know blackouts when, <laughs> you know a game wasn't sold out all of that sort of stuff and any solution that is built on that is always going to be a band-aid yeah if you, if you have to have um prohibitive measures to increase short-term gains no good yeah at the same time, you're seeing the beginnings of the decline of the English game. So the 1973 Kangaroo Tour was a major financial black hole for the league. Crowds were down. The quality of English football was getting worse and only went worse and worse from there. So what do we put that down to? Do we put that down to uh, losing players to union? I, that that you know requires some... I don't even want to speculate on the reasons for that because I, I actually don't know. I mean, I, I guess the money was coming into the Australian game more than it was into the English game. Mm. You can see that with, you know, the the quality of the players that came out in the early 70s. Absolutely. And and you know, it's it's often talked about in terms of the 82 Kangaroo Tour that the differing standards of professionalism had made it almost impossible for England to compete on any kind of uh, level ground. Yeah, it continued uh, exponentially. Yeah. But uh, I mean, now we're on that like uh we need to consider the actual era. Like we're talking about this, like it's sort of not that long ago. But in, in Humphrey's opening salve, there is like uh, the feasibility of air travel. Like air travel was still like quite new. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Commercial air travel. Yeah. I mean, it had been less than twenty years Amazing. since the kangaroo team flew yeah. by air. You know, we're obviously going to talk about you know the English game in depth once we get into Super League and you know their eventual signing with Super League. But you could plot this same history, I'm sure, from the English perspective and look at events, you know, in the 20 years between them signing that led them there, you know. Yeah, yeah. But so uh, you you are getting a sense that all the all the positives in the 70s were kind of a bit co- cosmetic. You're seeing clubs overspending on, on players and everything else that would lead to serious financial trouble in the 80s. Uh, attempts to, to stop this through various, you know, transfer schemes or... There was, you know, limits on how much you could pay players. All these measures basically got ignored by the clubs and the league was fairly powerless to do anything about it. <laughs> but you are seeing the start of league taking taking its steps to be a kind of a business, for lack of a better word. So you're seeing sponsorship coming in. So East were the first team with City Ford in 1976 and, you know, most clubs followed shortly after. It's amazing that it took that long. Yeah. But at the same time, it's it's kind of telling that that was, you know, one of the, the first things they did, like where to this day you don't see sponsors on like NBA players' jerseys or, you know. Yeah. I know it's a big thing in European soccer, I guess, but yeah, um, it just shows you that there weren't that many money streams available, especially when the league was so resistant to increasing TV coverage. Absolutely. Uh, and the other big uh, big push in the 70s was for State of Origin, which, of course, came around in 1980. And did you know that Mick Cronin and Arthur Beetson <laughs> actually had a fight which you know made everyone realise it was fair dinkum? We're covering all the great rugby <laughs> history tropes. Um, yeah, I, th- I think we mentioned them all now. So thanks for listening, everyone. But uh, So Rom McAuliffe, boss of the Queensland Rugby League, he typically gets all the credit for... Uh, you know, giving birth to the state of origin concept. But 
it's almost like the you know Greg Inglis being discovered as a six foot two 14 year old in Maxville you know like <laughs> the idea had been talked about for at least 15 years before origin started the concept actually was in use in York between Yorkshire and Lancashire in the 19th century so in addition to being a no-brainer it wasn't it didn't come out of nowhere and in fact the VFL instituted in 1977 and it was directly because of the success of that that the momentum to get it for rugby league um you know grew yeah there's been a bit of um, a bit of revisionist history on the old origin origin <laughs> mm, yeah. but on the other side of that is the reasons why it absolutely had to happen and that is the absolutely diabolical crowds for sydney uh, interstate games so the the fixture had fallen so far in the public consciousness that it had actually been moved to suburban grounds in 1978, moving to Leichhardt. The following year in 1979, they drew 4,150. That's disgusting. And of course, in 1980, where there was a standalone origin, there was one state of origin game and another series played under the old system. The crowd at Leichhardt, 1,638. Must have been wet. <laughs> <laughs> It's like obviously it was it was instant. It was successful. It changed rugby league. Uh, it, it actually, I, th I think, it made rugby league. I don't know if there is the push for a super league without the success of Origin and the taking of the game into non-rugby league regions. I think without state of Origin, the, the other three states in this country, um, the backup states as I call them, <laughs> they would not even care one bit about rugby league. Yeah. It's just yeah, mm. seismic change. Yeah, but not everyone was on board from the start. This was uh, Bob Fulton's quote on the first State of Origin game. He called it the non-event of the century. <laughs> he said the game would achieve absolutely nothing. <laughs> so this is the guy that's been controlling rugby league for 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> Great mind. So there are things happening. There's the growing sense that rugby league needs to embrace the commercial aspect there's the idea that state of origin had to come in they've got to ad address crowds they've got to do something so moves were being made all the time and one of the biggest was the idea of pushing the game into new markets with new clubs and of course you got that with illawarra and canberra coming to the league in 1982 i actually had a uh, in the course of my work i had to do a bit of research on that the other day Illawarra actually signed uh, the admission in December 1980, I read. Mm. And I was like, it's in the works for a long time. Yeah, so Illawarra were announced in 1980 and, and Canberra were battling with Campbelltown for the, the 14th license for the 1982 season. So it, it had been in the works for a while. Interestingly, one of the reasons that Illawarra were viewed as essential to get into the league was that they were in a, their local comp was in a downturn and, and rugby league was struggling in the district. And it's odd that that was the impetus. Yeah, when it it kind of suggests the opposite. And from the start, they had financial trouble. It took them a long while to achieve success on the field, and when they did, it was a very temporary state of affairs. One thing I was thinking when you had your intro about having a team in Wagga, and it's easy to scoff at that, but if if West had moved to Wagga back then, it'd probably be a major hub mm. now. Yeah, because all we've heard about for you know. Basically, all our lives is that we've we've lost the Riverina, we've lost Wagga Wagga, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a shame that it didn't maybe go that way as well. Yeah. 
But interestingly enough, at the same time that Illawarra were being considered, you had Newcastle wanting to join the league, a Central Coast team in the mix. Campbelltown, who were ultimately the biggest rival to Canberra to get in for that 14th license. So Newcastle made moves to enter, but then ultimately decided they weren't ready. I can't believe that it took that long to get him in, mm. but you know it was a strong Newcastle comp. Yeah, what pains me to this day is that Central Coast now has this stain, like that will never be removed from the Northern Eagles again with this manly conspiracy stuff. Yeah, like if we have a relocation to the Central Coast, it would be a major hub immediately, mm. and it's just not going to happen. And the other thing about it is, it needs to be a relocation. Like when you know, there's talk of you know, expanding the competition in 2023, that's not going to be the central coast because it's not a big enough step. Absolutely. So relocation is the only option, but whether that will ever happen. It's a case of two birds with one stone. Yeah. And at the same time that they were talking about bringing in new clubs, they were also strongly considering a promotion and relegation system to deal with the, I guess, the, the lack of players to generate 14 teams worth of talent. And to get new markets like Newcastle and Central Coast, the opportunity to get a team in the mix. I think we dodged a bullet there. Uh, I don't think promotion and relegation is an Australian custom. It's not, but it, it's it's interesting when you did have... So when, when the, the second division came in in the 60s and you had these strong teams, the likes of you know Wentworthville, etc., and there was a real idea that this could happen, like that... If they'd have brought in promotion and relegation then, I, I think it probably still would have led to a situation where it was just too many Sydney teams. It would have been double the amount of suburban Sydney yeah, teams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it probably wasn't the answer. But at the same time, when you look at it as a potential solution in the Super League era, I, I don't think it's without merit. Well, uh, I disagree on that. The argument about there's not enough players to sustain this many teams, I find that the most short-sighted argument ever. All it takes is like five years of junior development and you have got those players. It's like, shouldn't we be getting the actual areas right and not worry about the first grade quality in the short term? I don't know. I disagree on that. Like, because I think you need to, you know, everyone's saying now that we're, we're seeing like a, a, a strong second tier. You're seeing like quality first grade players regularly playing in reserve grade. And people use that as a, as an argument that we need to increase the amount of clubs. But I think that's absolutely what you want is a strong second division. Agree, but it's like it's always better to start off with a, with a strong squad when you're expanding. Yeah. Gold Coast can tell you that. But I think I think getting the getting the coverage in the areas right is more important than uh, worrying if there's like you know, two teams short of players of first grade quality because they'll easily get up to speed. And, and I think that ties back into the promotion and relegation thing. And it's something the English League is dealing with at the moment is that expansion is almost fundamentally at odds with promotion and relegation. True. Because, I mean, we can't bring in a Perth team in 2023 and have them playing in the second division two years later. No. <laughs> so it, it's kind of one or the other. And, and, then we, and then Super League England has shown us that you have guaranteed licenses for some clubs and then you want to talk about favoritism. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. <laughs> In 1995, and we're going to, you know, go into this in much detail once we finally get to 1995, which I promise you listeners will happen sometime this year. We'll get to the actual Super League year. But 
a lot of the solutions did involve promotion and relegation. And ultimately, I agree with you, but I think once we look into them, you can, you can see where the league's coming from and where it possibly could have worked. Yeah. Again, it's one of these things where there's never really an actual answer to these problems. Yeah. There's, there's, a, uh, there's a best case terrible solution mm. <laughs> answer generally. Yeah. So as, as the game was expanding, as Illawarra and Canberra were coming in, Kevin Humphreys sounded out to the the Sydney clubs that they were basically on notice and that, you know, foundation clubs were looking at amalgamating or expiring. So in 1979, teams like Newtown and Norths were basically given a three-year window to prove their their worth in terms of staying in the competition long term. And we're seeing, we saw it at the same time in the early 90s when Quail's threatening clubs and saying, you've got to show that you're financial, you've got to show that you're self-sustainable. So a lot of threats along the way. And then <laughs> there's always like this, you know, we're not going to rescue any more clubs, but okay, we'll rescue you this one time. It's the resilience of them. Mm. It's incredible. But like, do you remember the uh, the uh, point system for the license? Where you have to have a certain ground, you have to have a certain uh, sponsorship, mem- membership, blah, blah, blah. I mean... Balmain and, and uh, Manly got in with their grounds. So, mm. like, how strong were the <laughs> yeah. was the criteria? Yeah. And, yeah, obviously we'll, we'll discuss those criteria as well. But so 1982 was the start of the Winfield Cup era, which I always kind of think of as this kind of groundbreaking moment in rugby league. When I think of the Winfield Cup era, it feels like it, we talked about the use of the term, you know, the the modern age, you know, Winfield Cup era kind of feels like the modern age, you know. Now, is this just us being children? This is what I wanted to, to talk to you about because when I was, when I learnt that the, the Winfield Cup wasn't even as old as I was, <laughs> I was shocked. Like, it just seemed like the Winfield Cup was rugby league, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a couple of reasons that, for, that I want to explore, but I might save them for just a minute because it was striking to me how little how little space was given to the idea of this being a new era in 1982. So I'll read this. This was Kevin Humphrey's uh, opening statement in big league uh, to, you know, to ring in the start of the Winfield Cup era. The curtain rises this weekend on what promises to be the most exciting year in rugby league history. Weekend matches mark the opening of the 75th celebration year of league and introduces a 14 club competition with the inclusion of Illawarra and Canberra. It also heralds the sponsorship of the 1982 Premiership by Winfield, announced earlier this week after a series of conferences between company officers and representatives of Rugby League. Rugby League is excited by this sponsorship. The competition will be known as the Winfield Premiership and the winning club will take out the inaugural Winfield Cup. That was kind of the entirety of the discourse about this new era starting. I suppose it's just a new sponsor back then. Until you had the red in goals and... You know, the iconic trophy lifts. Yeah. It's just a new sponsor. Mm. But you never hear anyone talking about the Telstra Cup era. No, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so it, it definitely worked. And this is what I want to talk about. So what we really think of as the Winfield Cup era, I, I think actually begins in 1983, not 1982. Yeah. And the biggest reason for that is the trophy which was commissioned mid-year in 1982. <laughs> it it did, didn't exist six weeks out from grand final day. Now, not one of our listeners nor us is surprised to hear that uh, something was done mid-season that should have been done plenty of time ahead. <laughs> but if doing it mid-season meant getting it right, then, yeah. you know, well thank done. God they did. So 
no one listening to this show needs to hear what that image means. Like we all know it. It's, uh, you know, in our rugby league DNA. But your your old rugby league week pen pal, Norm Tasker, <laughs> wrote, wrote a great book called The Gladiators about Norm Proven and Arthur Summons. And just this this little quote about the Winfield Cup or, or that image more, more specifically, I, th- I think is worth repeating. Rugby league has produced many fine players, many great teams and many grand occasions in the 50 years since the Gladiators did their stuff. Yet nothing, even now, captures the game's spirit quite as does O'Grady's photograph, perpetuated in the Premiership Trophy. It's a constant in changing times. In an era of high professionalism, saturation television coverage, the personality cult of modern sport, and the constant scrutiny of an all-pervasive media, the Gladiator's image remains a permanent reminder that the game, no matter how sorely tested, has at its, has at its heart an ethos of sportsmanship and camaraderie that reflects the best of the human condition. It is at once a memorial to another age and a beacon of light for the future. Beautiful words. Yeah, and I, I love those closing words, a memorial to another age and a beacon of light for the future. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's like, I, I know I'm, I'm very, very biased in this, but I think it's the best trophy I've seen in world sports. Yeah, me too. Uh, and I know that, I, I don't think any of the, the Telstra Cup, all those are, are just okay, but that Winfield Cup... Just you know, a wooden base, a hollow wooden base, <laughs> and and that statue, like it just says everything about rugby league without saying anything. It yeah, it does. I, I mentioned the trophy base, and we've we've actually got a reason for the for the hollow base. If anyone listened to us talk about the trophy last week, that the actual trophy was too heavy when it had a solid base. God. But at the same time, just put a bit of plywood on the underside. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah you know, totally. Just close it off. Um, and you could see once that Winfield Cup trophy came in, everything seemed to just fall into place. So this was Kevin Humphreys introducing the 1983 Premiership in Big League. The Winfield Cup trophy has been presented as a symbol portraying aspects and characteristics that apply to all players of the big game. The big game is about losing as well as winning. It's about big men and not so big men. It's about forwards and backs. It's about support for a team. It's about friendship. It's about acknowledging the skill and dedication of others. The Winfield Cup is put forward as an ultimate symbol of Australian sportsmanship. Suddenly you get this trophy and you've got like the best marketing tool like possibly avail- available to you. Absolutely. Now, I w- wanted to bring up the marketing. It's no coincidence that Winfield, who was their parent company? Was it Rothmans? Rothmans, yeah. yeah. So a cigarette company in that era had the most genius, uh, insidious marketing skills to try and murder hundreds of thousands of people by cigarettes, right? But like, without them orchestrating all this, the red in goals and everything, there's no way it would have been as acute if the league was running it. Yeah, and it gets even more insidious when I tell you who was the brainchild of the the Winfield Cup trophy. Uh, former Wallaby Gary Pierce, <laughs> who who was working as a like you know marketing executive or whatever at Rothmans at the time, right? So he was given the task of coming up with the trophy idea. Was flicking through you know a rugby league book or whatever it was, and saw the gladiators image, and said, "Yep, that's it." Uh, that's disheartening to hear yeah. that. But anyway, um, I think Gary Pierce deserves a uh, pat on the back. Yeah. So as I said, once they came up with the concept and, and got approval from the Winfield bosses, they had less than two months until the grand final. So the last step was getting Proven on board. So famously non-drink and non-smoker, 
very upright man. There was, you know, probably with good reason, worry that he wouldn't go with being, you know, essentially the face of Winfield's sponsorship with Rugby League. And he said that he did have concerns about it, but he said, uh, in the end, I said yes with one proviso. I did not want to be linked with any cigarette promotion. I wouldn't do anything that promoted cigarettes. I agreed to the trophy name, but that was all. I got an undertaking that I would not be involved in advertising of any kind, and I have to say Rothman's honoured that commitment absolutely. Very wise, then, because they would have milked him dry mm, otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. But it's the wrong it's the wrong era to fight that. I mean, yeah. that was the, the, the boon of cigarette money. It'd be like trying to fight sports bet now. It's the right thing, but it, you, you'd be fighting a losing battle. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in the, the war that Arthurson and Quayle raged against the banning of cigarette sponsorship, they appealed to, you know, their friends in high places like Nick Greiner and Bob Hawke. And Bob Hawke actually told Quayle, mate, you're not going to win. And, you know, kind of that that's, that's where it was. But one of the great things that Winfield did was to actually give up their rights to that trophy and let that image live on as, you know, the trophy to this day. It is good, but I mean, imagine if they said, no, we're keeping it. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, because that original trophy, that could have well have just been it and then they move on to to a new design for, you know, the Optus Cup and, and subsequently the, the Telstra Premiership. Yeah. And I guarantee there would have been marketing executives in 1996, you know, with some Super Bowl type generic trophy yeah for sure <laughs> thank god we kept the uh gladiators so that was kind of like the last uh the, the last positive thing that humphreys brought in before it all fell down around him and how it did all fall down around him was of course the the, the fraud affair which became the focus of a four corners episode in 1983 that forced his removal from the league so just for a recap of the actual story so in 1977, he'd already faced charges of fraud for you know financial impropriety while he was secretary manager of Balmain Rugby League Club. This was all you know closely linked with his gambling ties, amount involving fifty thousand dollars or so, with allegations that he'd used the money for his own benefit, uh, and he subsequently fallen into debt and had to pay back various people in the league. He was acquitted though, acquitted of those charges in 1977. But when the Four Corners story broke, it was strongly alleged that there was pressure put on the magistrate to acquit him. And he subsequently got retried, convicted, placed on a good behavior bond and, you know, lost his job with the league. You know, and, and this, this affair went all the way to the top. Like New South Wales Premier Neville Rand temporarily had to step down. Murray Farquhar was actually jailed for, for his role in the scandal. I've been the name Murray Farquhar for a long time. <laughs> and it, it's just rugby league's luck that that Four Corners story, which was produced by Chris Masters, brother of Roy, the rugby league aspect was supposed to be just a small part of a wider investigation into administration of Australian sport right. and they just struck gold on the first go and you know I think there's eight hours or so of footage recorded you know so that there's there's more to the story that probably didn't come out good lord so this brought Humphreys down and but in in a big way he was a victim of a culture that was just around in rugby league at the time and when I say a victim he's he was undoubtedly a key proponent of that culture as well but the the gambling culture that had seeped into rugby league administration and never left never left yeah exactly but it was quite brazen in the 70s where you had close links to racing and you know like various little schools of of blackjack or whatever else was going on ken arthurson was actually 
quite angry about a story that that came up about him and Humphreys running a two-up score in, in Brookvale. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I actually do believe Arthurson's account that, like, it was, you know, just... It was a very low-stakes kind of friendly kind of thing. It wasn't... They weren't, you know, like, you know, making having this side racket. <laughs> but again, it comes down to perception. And when you do have a league boss who is caught up in it, like, up to his eyeballs... Again, you need transparency. Yeah. You cannot be having guys with like, when you get involved in underworld type setups, you know, SP bookies, all yeah. the rest of it, no good. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the the curtain came down on Humphreys on the 2nd of May, 1983, almost to a day, 10 years after he took control. And in, when he did lose lose power, there was a lot of a lot of discussion about his legacy and where he left rugby league. And 10 years is a good run though. Well, when you consider that, you know, he, he got out of the job alive, is it a good run? Like, aren't you supposed to <laughs> be carried out in a coffin? I'll just, I'll just read this uh, by Ian Heads. This was his account of the, the farewell speech that Humphreys gave when he announced his resignation. Kevin Humphreys' last speech to the New South Wales Rugby League was also ironically his finest. Humphreys spoke brilliantly as he wrapped up his career at the league's club last Monday night. It was emotional, positive, encouraging. It brought tears to the eyes of at least one official in the room. Unfortunately, I can't tell you much more about it. Humphreys asked that the press not record what he said. It was aimed, he said, directly and specifically at the men who will be charged with running the game of rugby league from now on. Basically, it was a call for harmony and for the settling of differences, for the good of the game. Unquestionably, it had an effect on everyone in the room. When President-elect Tom Bellow Bello took the chair, he declared, I've never felt more inadequate in my life. It, it kind of goes back to that idea of style over substance. Mm. Like this bloke has just been caught up in, you know, a major scandal. He's leaving his job as a result of it. The As we'll touch on, the, the game isn't in a very good place in 1983 when he does leave office. And yet the, the general tone of the people running the game is, you know, oh, wasn't that a great speech? He must be a good speaker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so his legacy is a mixed one. You know, there were undoubtedly positives, but I think ultimately, as you said earlier, the, the first and last thing he's ever talked about is his downfall. Oh, a close second is the uh, getting rid of the violence. Yeah, yeah, which, yeah. Is so a positive? That's, that's a big part of our next episode, but that is something that very much took place under his regime. So that's when I say a very mixed record, and you can't deny the, the steps he did take in bringing rugby league into a modern age. But at the same time, rugby league was basically on its knees in Sydney in 1983 with crowds at, at record lows. And the funny thing is you look back on it because of the entertainers, because of Sterling and Kenny, you don't think of it like that. Mm, yeah. Um, so we're going to look closely, more closely at that in our next episode. But just to give you a, an idea of where rugby league was at in 1983. So average crowds in 1983 were 6,956. Holy dooly. So there were only six games that attracted 15,000 or more in the whole season. And this was Neil Cadigan riding in Rugby League Week in 1983. It was shown that people will go to watch the big matches, but it's obvious people won't watch matches between second-class teams with no match winners when they can sit in the comfort of their home and see a replay of the weekend's top game. So again, the idea that there's just not enough players to sustain the teams in the league. So I, I know you say that that's not as big an issue, but when crowds are free-falling, 
there's regularly meaningless games on a weekend. Well, we see that when Titans come to town. Yeah. Now, mm. just for a, a modern reference, but yeah. I mean, this is a, an ongoing issue. I mean, six thousand is pathetic. Yeah. But it's not too much worse than what we've got now. No, exactly. <laughs> um, but. This is where I really fear expansion without retraction. And I think the model is there with the AFL, which is held up as this, you know, oh, they they get 80,000 people at every game. And it's like, well, no, they don't. If you look at some of those teams, that they do better than rugby league unquestionably. But not only are the crowds not that great across the board, but you've also got every weekend, like, I'm in an AFL tipping comp. Uh, Judas. uh, Well, my dad lives in Melbourne, so I'm just in his work comp. But I, I just go by the the you know sports tab favorites, and every weekend without fail, there's two or three games where there's one team paying like a dollar thirteen and one team paying like seven dollars. Yeah. You know, the the balance of the competition isn't there. But um, on the expansion point, if you take Newcastle, North Queensland, and Brisbane out of the average crowd figures, Melbourne, what what have you got left? Six thousand average. Yeah, yeah. So if you put Perth in, they're going to get. A high high average. It's a it's a one team town. It's a one state town. Mm. Expansion's going to help, I think, in, in average crowds. Mm. Yeah. So again, we've got a lot more talk on this next week. So I don't want to preempt it too much. Just to finish, to show you where rugby league was at in 1983, as we look toward the Arthurson era in our next episode. This was the rugby league week readers poll of that year. Only 14 percent of people think the league is as well run as other sports such as cricket or the VFL. Only 27% believes that New South Wales runs the sport well. The Only 22% of people rated the image of the league and its administration as a good one. 64% of people believed individual officials wielded too much power. Of that number, 47% named Manly boss Ken Arthurson as the man wielding too much power. And 54% of the people believe favoritism is shown to one or more teams by referees. Uh can you guess the team that was named as the recipient <laughs> of that favoritism? I bet you it's not Western Suburbs. I bet you it's Manly. So 82% of those people said Manly were the favoured team. And this was before Arthurson even took over as Australian rugby league boss. Yeah, but I mean, these figures are just about the small-mindedness of rugby league people, in my view. They are, and you can very credibly make that case. But when the New South Wales Rugby League is also making that same case, <laughs> it shows their short-sightedness and their inability to to listen and respond to any need for change. So they actually took out a like quarter page, you know, space in the following week's Rugby League week and said, I won't read the, it's, it's a, a long piece, but you know, this was the tenor. The first thing to say is that a response of 2,500 readers to a poll is very impressive and reveals the strong relationship Rugby League Week has with its readers. However, we've discussed the matter with our advisors on research matters. They've pointed out that there are a number of technical areas that cannot be overlooked when interpreting these results. Uh, and goes on to talk about sample bias and design of the questions <laughs> and the questionnaire. Reactionary yeah. defensiveness. And, and it's like, again, you could build a very good case that that is true, but if you are the New South Wales Rugby League... And this is the public's perception. Do yeah. they want to hear that? No, they do not. I mean, I forgot that era when people would take out like ads to like defend things. Yeah. Ridiculous. <laughs> that was like commonplace. He's taking out a front page ad. Um, ridiculous. So this is where we leave the game in 1983. Rugby leagues at an all-time low brought about. Rugby league at an all-time low beset by scandal, appalling crowds, clubs in crisis, 
This is the reins that Ken Arthurson is handed. So on our next episode, we're going to look at the changes the game made and some of the, the strengths of the Quayle and Arthurson administration that undeniably brought the game to a much higher place once Super League came in. But as we'll see, a number of the same kind of mistakes, the same missteps, the same lost opportunities plagues the game. It's easy to take over when it's in the in the doldrums. You can look good quickly, but uh, I look back on it superficially with fond fond memories. That mm-hmm. era, yeah, Quail Arthurson. Um, but so as we as we finish, I, I I'm working on getting some reading lists together up on our website because you know we've consulted a lot of sources for this series, and I want to make sure those sources are acknowledged and give listeners the chance to go out and and have have a read of some of them themselves. So. Before we get to that, uh, I'm just going to each week, I'm going to shout out one book or one source that we've used. But in the interim, what I want to do each week is to just to just highlight one source that we've used that um, has, has helped us. And today I'm going to mention that same book, Gladiators by Norm Tasker. So a very interesting depiction of not only the, the era where they were both playing in the 60s, but also the birth of the Winfield Cup and, and all the all the stuff that went into that as we've talked about today. So Gladiators by Norm Tasker, highly recommended. So with that, we will speak to you next week where we'll be looking at the 1980s in depth. Toodaloo. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.